Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend, Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you today? Hi, Alan. I am doing great, and it's very nice to be on with you today. It is. We were off for a couple of weeks because of some issues that I had moving into a new house in in California. But And uh, congratulations on your lovely new house. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's exciting to have a permanent resident again in a place. Um, so lots of us, lots of things for us to talk about today. I think one of the things we want to kind of recap on is the coalition building. So last time we talked, um, I I naively projected that been, that uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would not have any difficulty forming a coalition, but I guess I'm wrong, and I'm sure you'll fill us in on that. Um, well, I wouldn't be so harsh to say that you were you know naive because I think a lot of people um, thought like you did that right this was going to be a fairly simple coalition to put together. It was sort of obvious who the parties were going to be. And it was just a matter of, you know, the simple jigsaw puzzle of the ministries as bargaining chips and that it was going to come together. So I am, you're not the only one that is realizing that maybe it's more complex than we thought. So let's just recap a little bit. So what we know today is that uh, Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, had put together a coalition of between 62 and 64 members of Knesset, uh, and he needed a pretty strong right-wing coalition to keep people together, and, and that entitled um, Betzalel Smotrich and Ben Gvir to have some influence in this coalition building, as well as kind of the standard uh, Shas and other religious parties who's been left out that could have some influence in building a new coalition if Netanyahu is not able to strengthen what he's put together is that too difficult of a question for us to pose today so um I think that uh it's not like there are some other you know hidden parties that if Netanyahu can't make it work with the sort of obvious uh, parties that have a large number of seats, that there's another option. There there aren't other large parties that exist that would be willing to sit with Netanyahu right now. Right? If we had different personalities at play here, could have had a very strong, let's say, centrist government with uh, the Likud party joining with Gantz and Lapid, but that's not going to happen right now. Um, so Netanyahu really does need to figure out how to make it work with the religious Zionist party and the, um, UTJ and, and Shas and sort of the usual cast of characters. Um, and which, which gives those parties a lot of power, right? To hold out for the, the ministries that they want. And right now, that is what they seem to be doing, even though, even before the election, Likud had said that there were certain ministries that they were not going to consider 
um, bargaining over or offering to other parties, namely that defense and finance would that those ministerial positions would be held by members of the Likud party, that they would keep those to themselves. But as it happens, those are exactly the ministries that um, that Smotrich, for example, is most interested in. And he is saying that it's got to be one of those. So, so we'll see. So let me go back to my earlier question then. So if Smotrich doesn't get what he wants, and he has what he and Ben Gavir combined have 14 seats, if he walks out or in Ben Gavir walk out, Netanyahu doesn't have the 60 plus seats to form a government. So what happens? I mean, if that were really to happen, um, then there are, I guess, two possibilities. Either uh, the president, if if Netanyahu, you know, cannot form a coalition within the 30 days or whatever it is that he has to do so, then the president can authorize another party leader to attempt to form a coalition. Um, I don't think that there is another party leader that can. That's why it was so obvious, right, that Netanyahu was going to be the one given that opportunity. Um, and then the other option is to go to elections, which, you know, I don't think anybody thought seeing the results of this election, that that was going to be a possibility in the near future. And I, I still kind of don't think that that's what people are thinking, right? Despite whatever posturing and negotiations are going on now, I, I think that people do still feel like these parties are going to get in line and they're going to work something out. And it's, you know, sort of that classic Middle Eastern negotiations, right? They say it has to be one of these two, and then they'll, you know, they'll back down. Or Likud has said, we're definitely not considering, you know, offering those ministries to anybody but our, but our own. And then, you know, they work something out. So it's not unusual at all for the negotiations to sort of blow up a little bit the way they did today. And then a couple of days later, People have cooler heads and come back with other offers um, and they still figure something out. And I think we're very, there's a reason, right, why they get 30 days to try and make it work because it, it takes some time. So so in your opinion, you feel that Netanyahu is going to be able to hold his majority coalition together, even though there's this um, discord between the two right wing parties that kind of came together to help him build his coalition? I think at this point, yes, there's nothing, you know, that would strongly indicate otherwise. There is every reason to believe that they are going to come to an agreement and they are going to form what would be a relatively stable um, coalition. So once again, it's a wait and see, and hopefully the country doesn't go into elections again. Um, Yes, hopefully not. I don't see that happening either. But I I find it very interesting. And again, maybe I just haven't been studying enough of of Israeli personalities and politics to think that, one, all of a sudden, it was very easy for uh, Likud to join with other parties, although they didn't agree ideologically 100%, and to celebrate the fact that the country had a majority uh, of opinion to form a government 
and then all of a sudden to have it kind of stalled out. You're saying that's normal politics in Israel, and we have to kind of hold hold our breaths for another um, couple of weeks. Yeah, for better or worse, that is kind of how it works. And it's fascinating, right? It is so much about personalities here and negotiation styles and you know, not showing your hand and negotiating from a place of strength and and all those sort of political maneuverings that most of which I know absolutely nothing about. But um, but all those things play into whether and how a government gets formed. So the U.S. had our midterm elections. Any feedback in Israel about some of the people that were uh, re-elected or elected into office and how that plays out in Israel, uh, stronger Democratic Senate and more Republican House. So uh, I haven't heard too much about it here. I think that uh, Israelis, for the most part, aren't all that interested in the midterm elections, right? Israel definitely pays attention when you have a presidential election in the U.S., Israelis feel like the outcome of presidential elections in the U.S. has a direct bearing on our uh, security, on our uh, financial health, and on a variety of other you know issues and and topics on which we're close partners and allies with the United States. But but I don't think that Israelis follow necessarily what happens in the midterm elections. You know, our parliamentary system is so different than how the House and the Senate work, just as Israeli politics boggle the American mind. I think U.S. politics are a bit hard for for Israelis to grasp as well. (laughs) Um, I did notice that there was a hesitation on President Biden's part to recognize or to congratulate Netanyahu. Did that play out at all in the Israeli media? I took him Um, aside. There were some, you know, articles about whether or not it was fair to read something into that, right? Whether the congratulations should have come sooner. Um, You know, I I don't know. Netanyahu has kind of an ego, whether he personally noticed it and was offended. It's possible. Um, But I I don't know that from firsthand account. Again, we have to kind of see how the those parties play out we know that there was lots of tension between obama and netanyahu and netanyahu was prime minister and obama was president and and we'll see who winds up being um the minister of foreign affairs now right that will also have uh an impact on what relationships are like but what the relationship is like between the u.s and israel right now um you know, Lapid did it one way, and whoever does it next will will have a different style, and we'll probably be calling upon different, you know, U.S. based allies and partners. They're going to appeal to a different segment of the sort of U.S. political landscape. Right, right, and again, some of that falls into the fact that Smotrich and uh, Gavir are so far to the right that many American Jewish leaders are kind of hesitant also to look at how that relationship evolves. But at the bottom, at the end of the day, you know, most American Jews uh, feel like it's important to respect the process that took place in Israel as our process in America and to support 
the government to the best of our abilities on both sides. Yeah, and it, look, it is an interesting process, and Americans are not the only ones that are questioning how, you know, politicians who in the past were connected to, you know, violent factions and were considered uh, ineligible to run in previous elections, how did they suddenly become, you know, a legitimate mainstream candidate? Um, what has, you know, how has the pendulum swung that far? Does that really reflect what Israeli public opinion looks like? Um, and, and there are a lot of Israelis that are concerned about this. And, you know, what does it mean about Israeli democracy? Uh, maybe we'll add in the comments, there was a very good podcast from, um, the Shalom Hartman Institute interviewing the editor of the Jerusalem Post about this topic. And, and maybe we'll share that. Good. I, I've not listened to that yet. So thank you for bringing that up. Can I, can I switch topics a little bit? Cause I know that we'll be, mm -hmm. able to, we'll be able to talk about the coalition building for the next several weeks. Um, but I know also in the big news headlines around the world is the world cup soccer tournament that's taking place in Qatar, Qatar, however Which you want. will also be happening for the next several weeks. <laughs> it's probably, if if I could be um, so bold as to say, it's probably dominating most headlines uh, around the world um, versus building a coalition in Israel or America's midterm elections. Um, yes, soccer would, does seem to be a universal, universal thing. I also read that it's this is the first time that there have been direct flights from Israel to uh, Doha to Qatar. What what are you reading about that and about soccer or football in general? I am um, yeah. So uh, you know the World Cup just started, um, and Israelis like most people that aren't American are obsessed with soccer and very excited about the World Cup. I think the projection is that something like ten thousand Israelis will travel over the next month at various times to Qatar for the for the games. And the majority of those Israelis will travel through some third country because uh, until right now, there have not been any direct flights. And in fact, um, the very first direct flight, which I think left, I don't know, today or yesterday, something like that, was not supposed to be a direct flight. It was supposed to have a stopover in Cyprus. And then sort of at the last minute, FIFA, the International Football Association, International Federation of Football Associations, I don't know what FIFA stands for, um, worked out a deal for this flight to be able to come directly from Tel Aviv to Qatar. And supposedly there are another six such flights that have been approved for, for over the next couple of weeks. So, you know, I'm not a huge like sports person myself, but I think to see the power of sports to somehow trump like political and security measures is pretty cool. I mean, you know, for that to be the thing where the international community is like, come on, guys, we got to figure this out in order to get people to watch soccer games. I don't know. Maybe that really is the way to bring world peace. I, it's a good step. Uh, in that process, sure. 
there's been lots of debate around um, being able to serve beer at uh, the soccer matches as well as other changes because of cultural um, practices in Qatar. I have a question. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying 10,000 Israelis are going to watch soccer, but I don't think Israel is in the World Cup. So I, what's the attraction for Israelis to go and watch soccer? Yeah. Well, look, Israelis, you know, we're a small country. We're used to not always being in the World Cup. And people, I think a lot of Israelis just think the sport is beautiful, right? And want to be able to watch the sport, even if they're not rooting for their home team. And then there are, you know, Israel is a country of immigrants. So we have so many people here that have come from someplace else. So many Israelis have specific teams that they are following because they came from there or their family came from there or they traveled there, right? Um, and uh, I think, and, and it's a very Israeli thing. Like Israelis will go to see the World Cup wherever it is and whoever's playing. Um, so okay. yeah, they're, they're there. So there, there you have it. That's that's good. I didn't think about it. So, um, I had I think America, the U.S. is in the uh, World Cup. So I will be rooting for the U.S. of A. Uh, and I understand there's several Jewish uh, soccer players on the U.S. team. So it gives us more reason to pay attention to how America does um, in the World Cup. Uh, so many other things we could talk about, but as you and I have this addiction to uh, Sufka Niot. Oh my goodness! I knew you were gonna. Ask. <laughs> and we're getting we're getting to the uh, to the to the beginning of the month of Kislev with Hanukkah mm-hmm. around the corner. Are you starting to see advertisements for Hanukkah for donuts for whatever? What are you starting to see? Well, if there was any doubt of whether I am a person with any willpower whatsoever, I think we can put that to bed right now because it is. <laughs> several weeks before Hanukkah. I've already had like three. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. And, um, and I have to say, I think I sort of started off with the, I didn't want to peak too soon. So I started off with some sort of questionable ones and they, they weren't that great. They really were nothing to write home about. So we're definitely going to have to go back for some more. But so far, I had one that was, uh, well, it didn't have anything on the inside. I think they, like, forgot to stuff it. <laughs> but it was pistachio cream on the outside and sort of crushed pistachios. But there was nothing on the inside. And for me, I need the filling. So that was sort of sad. And then I had a little mini one that was chocolate. So, like, not the usual. It was tasty enough. It was very crispy. It was unusually crispy on the outside. And then I had another little one by accident because it was halva. And I don't really like halva. If I had known it was halva, maybe I wouldn't have eaten it. So all three thus far have left a little something to be desired. So I'll definitely have to continue my quest and report back on other flavors. I have not yet seen the super beautiful fancy like Oladin ones that we usually talk about each year. 
but I will make a point of seeing those. I think last year also we, we shared a photograph of the like Sufganya menu with just the different names and pictures. So I'll see if I can get a hold of that as well. So you know that I'm envious of your ability to um, shop or taste sample the Sufganya <laughs> in Israel. It's actually my favorite, second favorite time of the year to be in Israel, Sukkot being the first and uh, Hanukkah being the second, because I just, I love, I love the variety of donuts that have evolved over the years versus the, you know, the powdered Sufganiya of the 80s that that's all we had with some strawberry. Although many people still say that that is the best, right? Like to go to the Shuk, to Machna and get the simple classic Sufganiya, it definitely has its proponents. Before I let you close this out, I do want to share with you that I you know, did a little statistical analysis of our podcast listeners, and we have listeners from all over the world. I just want you to really? all over the world, uh, Europe, Asia, South America, uh, America. Um, I was very surprised that we had so many listeners from all over the world, and we will be crossing the threshold of a thousand downloads by the end of this week. So that was fun. So That's very thank, fun. Thanks, thank listeners. <laughs> so um, I thought that was pretty cool. So we'll have to continue to monitor our statistics. And um, thank you for listening. You want to close us out for the day? Um, this has been Israel Rebound, a podcast joining Jews and others in Nebraska and elsewhere, apparently a lot of elsewheres, to Israel. And we hope you have enjoyed it. Thank you, Liz.